right? So despite the best safeguards, the best controls, and the best um, uh, techniques and statistical analyses, you still find sufficient variation. So if you have to predict if this person is going to purchase a product, that's that's a relatively easier task because you have tons of clean data that you can rely on, right? So in biology, the biggest challenge comes from the fact that I don't know the truth. What is the ground truth? Uh, I mean, I can't fault anybody because uh, biology is a very difficult beast, right? The, the turnaround, the amount of time it takes to, to productize something. Uh, I mean, although we have like a, uh, an ongoing startup, uh, we've uh, I've previously mentored students on startups and they've had two really bright students who came up with brilliant ideas. And after four or five iterations, they just had to give up because they felt that they were solving research problem after research problem after research problem. I really think they could have published three impactful papers, but they literally couldn't get the product out because the, the biology is often poorly understood. And uh, this is why, you know, it's, uh, it's actually a very complex <laughs> beast to, to tackle. Welcome to the Inductive Economy, the podcast where we delve into the intersection of technology, economics, policy, and progress. I'm your host, Vignesh Swaminathan, and today we have a fascinating guest who is at the forefront of bridging the realms of biology and data science. Joining us today is Dr. Karthik Raman, a distinguished researcher and the mind behind groundbreaking work in the field of quantitative biology. Dr. Raman is the visionary leader of the Raman Lab at the Indian Institute of Technology, Madras, where his work is pushing the boundaries of what's possible at the intersection of biology and data-oriented research. He is also the co-founder of QBiome Research, a startup based out of Chennai, India. Our conversation today takes us deep into the quantitative nature of modern biology. Dr. Raman discusses the transformative impact of applying rigorous quantitative methods to unravel the mysteries of biological systems shedding light on how this approach revolutionizes our understanding of life sciences. We also explore the world of data-oriented approaches to conducting biology research. Dr. Raman shares insights into how harnessing the power of data is changing the landscape of biological studies, from understanding intricate cellular processes to predicting complex biological outcomes. Dive with us into the realm of complex systems as Dr. Raman navigates through the intricacies of studying biological phenomena as dynamic and interconnected systems. Discover the beauty and challenges of deciphering the complexity of life through the lens of a seasoned researcher. And last but certainly not the least, we delve into the mindset of the research entrepreneur. Dr. Raman offers a unique perspective on how combining research excellence with an entrepreneurial spirit can drive innovation and create meaningful impact in both academia and industry. Get ready for a captivating conversation that explores the nexus of biology, data science, and entrepreneurship. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Karthik Raman. So, Karthik, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's an incredible privilege and honor to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. I think it's uh, really looking forward to having an interesting discussion. Awesome. So, Karthik, uh, you work in the you work in the realm of uh, computational systems biology, right? I understand computation. I understand systems. I understand biology. But can you piece the three together and explain it if it's okay? 
sure yeah i think that's a nice way of looking at it so in fact i think uh, i'd like to start with computational and biology which somehow don't seem to occur in the same sentence right at least in uh, in for, for most people <laughs> and uh, i think this is changing a lot uh, you see a lot of um, uh, young children who are uh, you know good at math and also like biology but i always like to think of like say 20 25 years ago when you you choose to study biology if you don't like math and you choose to study math if you don't like biology right and um, and this has to change this is changing and you see that there are lots of applications for computation in in biology imagine something like uh, genome sequencing there's no way of going anywhere near that uh, without uh, extremely powerful computers at your disposal and uh, there are a lot of interesting uh, computational problems that are to be solved in biology and uh, so much so that you know there are some really uh, provocative articles that people have claimed that biology is becoming a fully quantitative science and uh, <clears throat> all biology is actually computational biology so essentially computational biology involves um, looking at various aspects of biology through a computational lens and there are so many quantitative problems to be solved in biology for example uh, i mean uh, nothing better to talk about than genome sequences you see that you know, if you are talking about human genome sequences it's about uh, uh, 3 billion base pairs right? and to actually read these 3 billion base pairs just what the whole idea of genome sequencing is and to then understand what is the function that is carried uh, out by each of the genes that are present in this genome sequence and so on all of this requires a lot of uh, uh, computation computational analysis uh, mathematical um, models that uh, go into various other aspects and so on and to go back to your original question about systems biology <clears throat> the whole idea is that you cannot understand like a really complex system by just looking at a few parts and you can't like uh, disassemble a, a car or an aeroplane and then eyeball the parts and figure out that hey yeah this is how it's going to work because you have lots of emergent phenomena which happen only when <clears throat> complexity happens so when these complex things uh, uh, come together then you all, all kinds of interesting behaviors uh, happen, uh, happen and uh, <clears throat> another classic uh, textbook uh, example for that is the is you know the uh, blind man and an elephant right so if you have a different people looking at different parts of an elephant they're going to think it's like a rope a wall a stick a spear or whatever but nobody has the full picture and um, well today we have the computational wherewithal to try and get the the you know better models and the full picture and uh, that is where a systems view of um, biological uh, of life of biological cells is coming in and so we like to look at a systems view of biology which is uh, as, and and of course it requires a lot of computation so right so that's your computational uh, systems biology and underlying a lot of this is actually networks so you know instead of calling it computational systems biology one could also call it uh, you know network biology is like a very important field inside of computational systems biology there are so many other aspects but this whole network thinking this systems thinking where i understand the fact that a lot of these um, entities are connected to each other and influence each other's function and uh, so on has become so so central to biological thinking in the modern era so let me just dive one step deeper into that explanation so what is a system 
what is a network and how do they differ yeah so i mean there are networks underlying every system right so uh, by a system we just mean and and by a complex system uh, we typically mean not just a large system because not all large systems are very complex but what we mean is a highly interconnected system you, you don't know if you know if i touch x what happens right the the, the, the cascading effects could be like uh, really phenomenal and uh, could be catastrophic in certain scenarios and so on so what happens when i manipulate a system right so one particular point of a system so to try to understand this better i think you need to really understand all the layers of networks that underlie these complex systems and this actually holds for uh, complex systems in general right i don't think um, we have i haven't mentioned anything else in the uh, in this discussion that's uh, very specific to biology so whatever i've spoken about so far is uh, uh, pretty much true of all complex systems and well biological systems are even more complex simply because of the uh, uh, because it's difficult to study them right you can you can't take the system apart and in a very yeah. famous uh, i literally feel like i'm doing my first class on my of my course on systems biology because these are all the discussions we actually get into and there is a very famous article which talks about can a biologist fix a radio <laughs> yeah right and it it basically takes the perspective like an engineer's perspective and how biology is all really weird to an engineer because they used to very well defined systems and very uh, 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 for instance uh, you know if to to make a joke out of this so how do you study uh, a radio right can you like you know take a, a a complex system you remove different you remove one piece and see if the system works if it yeah. doesn't work you then conclude that that piece is important for the system to survive and this is like the classical equivalent of a biological like knockout study or something like that because there is no other handle to interrogate a biological system because it, it's so complex you don't really understand the wiring today we have so many microscopic techniques and so many other sequencing techniques and so on which have evolved to the point that we are able to understand these systems to some extent but you still can't it's not like as well characterizable as an engineering system although the the ultimate goal is to sort of uh, do that to the extent possible right so 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 this is where the complexity comes in so so an engineer would be able to quickly mark out the key components of a system and so on whereas in biology you have to sort of reverse engineer the system is already in front of you now you have to somehow figure out what is the function the system is going uh, doing and how do i uh, go about manipulating it how do i go about understanding it in the first place and understand it well enough so that i might be able to manipulate it right and it's it's really interesting that you know if you can give a little overview on when when the network led thinking really came into biology because uh, i think when you say networks people naturally assume computer science by default to some extent right but like when you take a broader view of what a network is the most uh, amazing network of them all is actually the biological network right uh, because it's anti fragile it is self improving it is selective right it's got a lot of these wonderful I, i mean i might sound very amateurish describing my fascination with this but can you give a brief primer on when this network perspective of biology really kicked in and the quantitative side of it or the computational side of it really kicked in as a practice it's a very good point right so so the first thing you need um, whenever you have to study networks so and, and here uh, um, by the way you know the by networks we actually mean graphs 
Okay, graph theory as a, as a computer science object. So we are talking about collections of nodes and uh, the, the connections between them. And the easiest network for us to probably think about is like, a, you know, like an uh, airport map or something like that, because you already see that, right? So you see that all the dots represent airports and all the edges or connections represent um, flights and things like that. And this is essentially the same logic that's applied everywhere. And of course, uh, today, uh, social networks are all uh, uh, everywhere, so we understand them uh, very well. Interestingly, I think the, the contribution to network science has been huge from the from the social network side. So a lot of the classic experiments, a lot of the classic scientists uh, all came from the social science uh, uh, space. Although today you see like a huge contribution of biologists, physicists of course, like physicists are always uh, you know, rich in any field. And uh, you see that the contributions from these people have become uh, very important. But to go back to your question of when this really started uh, taking shape, I think this was, you know, close to the turn of the century, right? So around 2000, which is when the Human, human Genome Project also uh, completed uh, and so on. So that is when you really started having a much better picture of all the parts within a cell. Yeah. Of course, right, you know, the, the bacterial sequences are available earlier on, and, and, and so on. And uh, but uh, nothing to really set uh, people going like the human genome sequence. And uh, I would say around the, the, the 90s, uh, then to the 2000s and so on is when this uh, increasingly became uh, really interesting. And uh, the, uh, if, if you see most biological textbooks, the classic picture you will see is of a yeast protein interaction network. And that was published in 2001. So, which means that they were at it for at least four or five years uh, prior to that and so on. And it's like a very cool looking picture and where every dot represents a protein in yeast and, uh, and uh, then uh, an edge between two proteins means that these two proteins are interacting in yeast. And then they studied what happens if each of these nodes is remote from the network, right? So they of course studied it experimentally and then superimposed that information on your network to have very uh, interesting insights and so on. So I would say around the last uh, uh, last decade of the 1900s to early 2000s is where this really started kicking in. But now we've had this network science, network biology, you have books on network science today. And uh, there are like uh, so many interesting things that uh, people have been studying about these networks. So in the context of biological data analysis, what kind of data does your lab typically work with and what are your primary objectives in analyzing this data? Yeah, so uh, so we typically uh, uh, rely on a lot of publicly available data sets and data sets from our collaborators. Um, so uh, in fact, over the last uh, five, six years, we've uh, really become biased towards um, what is known as metagenomic data. We try to understand uh, microbiomes. Right? So this is basically collections of organisms in any particular environment. It could be the, the gut, it could be the skin, or it could be any other uh, environment that you can think of, right? It could just be the uh, in this room or in a, in a subway, in a train or uh, so on. In fact, um, we've actually looked at microbiomes from literally the deep sea to outer space. So we've looked at uh, these extreme microbiomes that exist in hydrothermal vents that are found deep below the sea. And we've also looked at uh, what kind of microbes are present aboard the International Space Station. Uh, so so the, the point is in all of these the things are our main input data is in terms of 
what is the place what kind of microbes are present there what is the count how much of each of these microbes uh, uh, is uh, is present and uh, today these are uh, doable using uh, uh, experimental techniques that tell you uh, what is the abundance of each of these microbes that are present in a given sample and things like that so this uh, this is essentially genome sequencing of a different kind and this has become very central to the study of uh, complex microbiomes and uh, this is one of the main uh, threads of work in our lab uh, but we originally started off looking at a lot of metabolic networks we still do that uh, but uh, we we now look at metabolic networks across my microbes right so a metabolic network is nothing but so when you take food it's broken down into various components and so on so um, you know if, if you take glucose it becomes something else in the body it ultimately produces atp and energy right but there is a complex pathway that um, that is involved in converting glucose or anything else to any, to everything else right so the same glucose will ultimately uh, be converted to proteins or fat and other things as well right so how do you study all of these uh, metabolism seems to be a very important aspect of how even microbes interact with each other and so on and it has lots of implications for us to understand what kind of relationships exist between microbes in different environments so we we focus a lot on the metabolic lens to look at cells so one way to actually run these kind of analyses is to have some sort of a theoretical investigation framework right you have to have some sort of a framework and then you test that framework against what the reaction in the microbiome would be and then you test whether your hypothesis is actually accurate with what is actually happening on the cell correct if i'm not maybe it is a very simplistic way of it's explaining no, no, absolutely yes you're spot on you're spot on so in fact um, uh, um, i should say that this is a huge uh, motivation for computational and systems biology as well right uh, so uh, computational and systems biology are most important in telling us what might be the most interesting or informative experiments to do because you right. have a whole universe of experiments to, to to try out and obviously always very limited uh, money to run these experiments so what is going to be the most informative or the most useful experiment uh, to uh, to to first try out in the lab right so so these kinds of and to to have a priority list of experiments it's very good to have these computational predictions which tell you okay i think this microbe a is uh, secreting metabolite x which is picked up by microbe b and it helps the growth of microbe b or this microbe a is secreting some molecule that is killing microbe b so you you start coming up with these kinds of hypotheses and then you you try to do some experiments and try to understand what's what's really uh, happening right and and uh, often times the, the interesting part comes when your uh, your experimental uh, observations are very different from what you computationally predicted so then you go and try to fix your model right so so this is what we call the systems biology cycle it's like Uh, similar to a typical design build test learn cycle in engineering but the whole idea is you you build a model and or, or you start with some hypotheses or even data and yeah. then you you know go to a model uh, and you make some predictions in the model test these in experiments and now you look at the delta between your experiments and the uh, model and see if uh, you know there is some assumption that has to be challenged some other uh, approximation that needs to be given up and so on to tweak and improve your model to make it uh closer to reality so one thing that really fascinates me is like for example when you look at other fields they are having replication crises correct like for example your social sciences etc i know that we are not talking about that but 
when you're talking about cells how do how do you know given that you are working in both a theoretical as well as an experimental mode of actually analyzing uh, biology how do you ensure that there is accuracy and replicability in the kind of experiments that you are running oh this is like a fantastic question and this is something that's been bothering uh, a lot of people more so off late and uh, <clears throat> but i would like to decouple this uh, a little right so there is an experimental reproducibility crisis and shockingly <laughs> a computational reproducibility crisis right i think yeah. we need to look at both of these and uh, and <laughs> thanks for bringing this up because this is close to my heart uh, so experimental reproducibility is is a complete beast of its own right so you see papers where people picked up uh, you know like nature papers and try to repeat the experiments and so on and this is where you know the 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 beast that biology is comes to haunt you in the sense that there is so much inherent variability right so despite the best safeguards the best controls and the best um, uh, techniques and statistical analyses you still find sufficient variation and uh, this is uh, one reason for this is that the inherent heterogeneity in biology you take two exactly you took take two clonal e coli cells they're going to behave differently <laughs> right um, forget about two human beings and right yeah everything else right so when even when you take like cells so which is why today you have this whole uh, field of single cell sequencing wherein mm. people stop looking at a collection of cells as a whole but give importance to individual cells within this connect, uh, collection because each of them has a different story to tell and you have like a distribution some things are narrow some things are broad and that's how you ultimately try to do the uh, try to get the understanding but then again i think people have tried to make sure that they report protocols in fact uh, in in reproducibility there is i uh, there is uh, there are again two or three angles to it the first thing is that do you fully understand what's written in the paper they say something but you know is it all the information that you actually need to to reproduce the the study right did they leave out like one crucial one seemingly insignificant information which comes back to haunt you right so so these become very important uh, issues as uh, when you try to reproduce experiments and this is exactly the problem with models as well i have like a really complex model did i leave out one initial condition reporting one initial condition so if you if you put those initial conditions it's a, it's a computer it's it's as it is the exact diametric opposite of a biological system this will work as intended in a deterministic fashion you know a biological system same e coli cell same input same day <laughs> different results are possible different result whereas here uh, you know there is there is no reason why uh, you know if you give the same inputs to a deterministic algorithm like any of our metabolic network metabolic network prediction algorithms you will get the exact same out output but what if i know only 90% of the input what if i know only 99% of the input the remaining 1% of what i don't know means that i still have to make some assumptions and this is going to come back to uh, to uh, plague me later on so how do i get around this so so these are some of the challenges so as it is to answer your reproducibility uh, question yes reproducibility is difficult and there are two aspects to it there is biological reproducibility and computational reproducibility and biological reproducibility uh, people have been taking lots of efforts so you have these um, uh, gory detail protocol uh, uh, reporting these days wherein you have to give every single aspect of your 
protocol. So hopefully you've taken out the unknowns out of the equation and, and you are consigning yourself only to the, <laughs> to the mercy of the heterogeneity in biology, right? That is, you can never take that out of the equation. In, in computation, there are, there are two things, right? So one is uh, to be able to give all the conditions, all the model parameters accurately. The second thing is the codes. So now it's very common. In fact, if you see every paper published from my lab, uh, even from the very first paper, there will be an accompanying GitHub repository which has all the codes. And if you run that, you will get the output. And because those are the exact codes that we use to generate the, the paper outputs. But even so, there are challenges, right? So a, a database that we were relying on has today changed. So how do you freeze that? So, but but these are all things that scientists are well aware of, and they have been uh, developing technologies and tools to get over these, right? So now you try to build a Docker container wherein you have the exact version of every single tool that you use, and you put it in, you'll get the exact result. And this is where I think journals have become very good today, and they've been insisting on reproducibility. So as a reviewer, I'm required to judge if people have submitted all the required data and tools, if the results look reproducible, if it's not practical for every reviewer to run all the tools and uh, uh, check them, but at least, you know, the best effort has been put in by the uh, scientists. All right. And, and this is where I get to another interesting aspect of the computation systems biology approach, which is there is a sense that it is inherently interdisciplinary and very pro collaboration. So can you speak about your experience, you know, collaborating with uh, others and what you learn from other fields when you actually work on something like computation systems biology? I think absolutely right. So this is like the core of this field. I would say you have to be interdisciplinary. And uh, so I've had students from uh, a chemical engineering background an electrical engineering background. Of course, very commonly a biotech background, which is like a big input to our department and also from a computer science background and so on. Right. So I've, I've already worked with all of these people. And similarly, I have collaborations with various departments. Right. I work with uh, folks in the chemical engineering faculty in the chemical engineering department and the computer science department and so on and so forth. Of course, within the biotech department itself. And uh, this has become very, very integral to this field because you need to um, at least from my perspective, we, we solve lots of problems where the computation can become challenging. So, so that is where the, um, so we are the domain scientists in, in some sense, right? I'm, I'm not a biologist myself, but in, in most of my collaboration meetings, I, I pretend to be the biologist, right? Because I typically know more biology than my uh, computer science collaborator and uh, so on. And, and what happens is that we may have a very nice idea, but to implement it, you need the right data structures and the algorithms to actually scale them because one big challenge in biology is scale. You typically talk about like a million cells, like a thousands of genes or a million genes. All of these become, or you're talking about pairwise interactions between like 100 microbes, right? And all of these become very computationally intractable very quickly. So how do you design scalable algorithms? So this is like a very important thing because you need to scale for systems. I mean, the whole idea of systems biology is scale because you're trying to look at the whole system. You're not going back and looking at one small pathway within a cell. You're trying to look at the entire system to the extent that is permissible by our computational techniques and so on. So for this, you need very strong uh, collaborations. And as always, um, uh, the, uh, the field itself has 
touch points to so many other fields. In fact, my my first brush with systems biology, if you say, came when I was an undergrad student doing chemical technology, where I was exposed to a, a course on process control. And process control is uh, is a classic chemical engineering course. Every chemical engineer does process control, but it has very direct applications in biology because biological systems are actually control systems. And so I mean, you you enter a hot room, uh, you start sweating more. It's all control, right? And, and your body temperature is uh, remains constant, right? So, so your system immediately uh, uh, reacts to any environmental stimulus, and it's a control system at play. You can obviously visualize that. So, and this is very central uh, to to biology. So, so chemical engineers become a very obvious uh, cog in this uh, whole scheme, where you know you need chemical engineers who are experts at control theory. to try and dissect uh, biological systems and now of course with uh, data science uh, you need data um, science folks from various backgrounds because there are various challenges biological data sets are first of all they are large <laughs> they're so large that we often worry about how do we copy this data set from this computer to that computer <laughs> it's going to take yeah. hours to copy the file because you're talking about like a few hundred gb files <laughs> yeah. and uh, things like that so starting from that to the diversity to you know the temporal temporal heterogeneity whatever right so every every axis of complication you have a tick in <laughs> biological systems so how do you deal with this so again uh, interacting with a lot of data science uh, folks either from a computer science background or from a chemical engineering background becomes highly advantageous and so so but i would uh, really uh, 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 one big uh, aspect of my collaborations has been that especially with computer scientists so it has been really fruitful because we can always come up with an interesting idea or an interesting algorithm but if it has to really scale you need experts who who can sit and do that for you right so that scalability becomes the difference uh, between running it on like a small toy system and a and a real biological system so just as a follow up on that so would you say that would you say that building algorithms to understand these large data sets would be the biggest challenge you face when modeling complex biological systems and networks well uh, i mean the, the biggest i mean it's it's certainly one of the big challenges the biggest challenge always is is comes from the data itself right so mm. the, the 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 quality and quantity and uh, cleanliness of the data uh-huh. right so that is where a lot of our efforts are <laughs> invested you try to find out oh this one sample is uh, you know missing here why because you know that there was a problem with the instrument on that day right so there is some one long story behind each of those uh, data points and you have to actually get around all of these because they'll turn up show up as outliers in your data they'll be like some uh, there'll be a some odd some odd story around that data point and things like that so this data becomes one big problem but then right after that i think it's the ability to you, you can come up with how many ever smart algorithms you want but if you can't really implement them appropriately scale them to the to the scale that is required uh, for instance we we had a study uh, several years ago where we looked at um, uh, this is actually a, a classic school question so you have a molecule a on the right hand side you have a, an arrow mark molecule b on the uh, okay a on the left hand side um, an arrow, arrow mark a molecule b on the right hand side and a question mark how do you convert this molecule to this molecule So in school we typically answer this from our uh, rote memory of various organic chemistry reactions and uh, things like that. 
but today we are able to learn these kinds of patterns from uh, databases of chemical reactions and so on but some of the databases we had uh, we looked at had around 10000 reactions but we wanted to build a system that would scale to hundreds of thousands of reactions so we artificially made new reactions like that look very similar and so on expanded the input data set and tested our algorithm on that data set right because that is like future proofing our algorithm because otherwise Correct. it can work on 10000 if it breaks down at 100000 it's not going to be useful 5 years down the line and if you see all biological data is uh, this doesn't look exponential this looks vertical but this is really how it looks right yeah. look at yeah. the accumulation of sequence data it's a hockey stick it's 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 almost a cricket bat now it just goes uh, straight yeah. up right so the, the and this is uh, contributed to by various things right so our ability to analyze these data sets the decreasing cost of very all of these systems and uh, and the rising importance of these kinds of analyses uh, which is keeping funding agencies interested in sponsoring these kinds of research and so on so together what we see is like a very meteoric rise of uh, all kinds of data and uh, this is why scalability i think is a huge challenge that biologists have to that computational biologists are looking at <clears throat> so so i want to focus on three things here now that you actually brought up this you know these really interesting ideas the first is you know the researcher a person who does the fundamental research work on the second level is the person who guides the next generation of researchers the person who runs the lab and on the third level i am actually seeing the the founder all right you take these insights that you actually sort of developed in your lab and you go out and productize it and you know you really build products and services out of it now maybe my understanding is wrong but i think when compute power really meets any field the potential to really create interesting products and services for the market goes up exponentially is a heuristic that i run with how true is it i don't know okay but from your experience when compute has now met biology what do you think is going to be the impact in various different sectors that you think are very exciting it doesn't have to be practical but the potential of it actually excites you and i'll come to the other two sections in a bit sure sure i think uh, uh, absolutely right because uh, uh, computing has a huge potential in all of these sectors and um, it has uh, really simplified a, a lot of uh, grunt work and things like that right so the kind of analysis you can do it's just so easy to repetitively do a lot of these simulations and so on and examine so many different possibilities that uh, would not have been so easy like say even 5 years ago right and and computing power uh, moore's law continue to continues to hold <laughs> and uh, it's like uh, you know uh, you you continue to be able to get so much computing out of like a simple desktop cpu today that you can still uh, run very difficult uh, simulations very complex uh, sequencing uh, runs and uh, things like that on a on a desktop computer of course you know we also tap into large workstations uh, gpus clusters and so on but um definitely you know it, it's it's making a difference and um, the, the the challenge though is that one um, unlike many other fields right uh, there is um, if if you're looking at say um, uh, like say uh, so something like um, uh, advertisement or amazon or something like that right so if you have to predict if this person is going to purchase a product that's that's a relatively easier task because you have mm. tons of clean data that you can rely on correct 
So in biology, the biggest challenge comes from the fact that I don't know the truth. What is the ground truth? <laughs> so you, you end up starting without this knowledge of the ground truth. And that becomes a huge challenge, whatever be the problem that you, uh, let's say, you know, we, we talk about uh, drug design. That's a very, it's a favorite problem if you look at the pharma industry, it's like a billion dollar problem and you have all these famous quotes from Pfizer and so on which say that we have to figure how to fail 90% of the time and not 95% of the time, right? You can like really double your productivity by failing 90% of the time. But that's how difficult the problem is because you have so many hundreds of thousands of molecules that enter the drug discovery pipeline and barely one or two make it out at the end. It, it's, it's just how this whole uh, complex uh, pipeline is. So today, if, um, there are people who are using uh, various algorithms uh, to try and design new drugs, right? So, so drug-like molecules or drugs that will go and bind to a specific protein in uh, um, yeah, COVID virus or wherever. Right? So how do you, you, you can scale today? You can try out millions of simulations and you can change the million to billion <laughs> today or shortly. You have that computational yeah. muscle to do that. But how, you still have to go and validate these in the lab. And you still have the worry of some un, unknown side effects, some un, un, uh, some things that uh, have not been budgeted for or predicted by any of the models. Right? We've been building better and better models to really try and capture what is going to be the effect of this drug in a patient. But then there's still so much more to be done. So this is what is uh, hampering, but there's definitely so much potential for co computing. And um, uh, and you'll see with, you know, these things like generative AI and uh, so on, these things are really going to take a turn over the next uh, few years. Uh, you, you see quickly that <laughs> these ideas are uh, having widespread applicability and it's, it's only a matter of time before there's like a very uh, tangible impact on uh, computational biology and biology in general. Yeah, that was going to be my next question actually, which is, did you have any, did you have a chance to uh, run any of your data sets with an LLM to see what insights you get with it? Yeah, so I actually haven't put these data sets, but you know, more in terms of um, interacting with these LLMs and so on. So it, it seems to have the ability to really um, uh, process text very well, uh, right? So, so that, that's definitely there. But in terms of what kind of insights you can uh, extract from, uh, like say, uh, like a genome sequence or things like that, I think as always the, the the catch will be the availability of quality training data. So how do you train these to to do well? But that said, I think people are uh, dealing with uh, far more difficult problems today than where they were dealing with uh, ten years ago. So a lot of, right. I mean, if you take something like um, AlphaFold, right? So that's been like a huge I was... impact. And I was I was actually going to come to AlphaFold as a matter yeah. of fact because I think AlphaFold is not perfect and um, yeah, yeah. It, it exactly goes wrong when you have like a very minor it cannot so let's say it predicts the structure of a protein perfectly and you make like a very tiny change to the protein sequence it it, it does not capture the it falls apart yeah right it, it is not able to capture these tiny changes although the broad overall structure is fantastic right. And, and you will see that that's going to be like, uh, it's going to have a huge impact over the next few years because we have 100,000 um, uh, solved structures, experimentally solved structures. And today suddenly it's a few million decent structures or like high, high confidence structures that have come out of alpha fold. So it really changes your view of protein structure space. I don't work in that field per se, 
So, um, uh, you know, I, I'm sure experts will have a deeper opinion on this. But uh, as a computational biologist, for a computational biologist, the biggest gap all the time has been that you want to understand the function of biological molecules. That's always the goal. And suppose you want to study, uh, know the function of a protein, you need to know its structure. But instead, we go with the sequence. Because, I mean, the idea is sequence maps to structure and so on. But you have the converse where, you know, one small change in the sequence will give you sickle cell anemia. Right? Exactly. So this is like a well-known school textbook example. So a small change can lead to a large change in structure. But typically, with 30% similarity between sequences, you have a decent, you know, a passable similarity, a serviceable similarity in protein structures as well. <coughs> And so you use that to make so many predictions and so on. But today you can actually take the sequence, run it through alpha fold, get a far stronger candidate for your structure and use that for predictions. Right? So this is all going to impact fundamentally how bioinformatics is done. So bioinformatics is a field that has relied on sequence to function. And, and now you can really try to see how to bridge this and, 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 uh, and go further, right? use, use more usable information such as uh, or um, protein structure is closer to the function space so to speak right you have sequence uh, structure function which is actually close by and you have to start with sequence typically and um, so and again right so you have dna sequence which gets transcribed to rna and you use all of the and and we know that rna or transcriptomic analysis rna is not sufficient to capture cells but it's easy to measure compared to the Correct. protein so you go with that. So these are all the challenges that I think will incrementally get solved over the next uh, few years. And and just as a throwback, when you what is your reaction when you came across the original Alpha Fold breakthrough? You know what did you when you read it? What was your reaction? Yeah, I, I think the, the the first thing was that how beautifully they had cast the problem. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I, I I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you here. I'll break it into two parts. Okay, first is when you saw it publicly being spoken about, what was your reaction? And then when you actually took the when you took the paper and you actually read what they had actually done, what was your reaction then? Like you're speaking to a colleague and they tell you about Alpha Fold, right? So when they were describing it, how did it make you feel? And then when you actually went back and read the paper, how did that make you feel? Yeah. So so I think um, uh, well there was a lot of hype, but. Almost none of the hype was uh, unfounded, <laughs> right? So it's it's probably the biggest step towards solving the the most talked about <laughs> problem, right? Which is uh, protein folding, because protein folding is so essential, so central to every quest, right? Be it drug discovery or uh, anything, because you all, as I was just mentioning, right? You always want this sequence structure function thing, and uh, so this pipeline is sort of what alpha fold addresses. And uh, I think they—it's—it's—it's uh, uh, it's, it's amazing how you know the, how well they had cast the problem and how they were able to make such a, an impactful, uh, such impactful predictions that that performed so well compared to say experimental predictions, right? So this has become this has uh, definitely been uh, obviously a huge breakthrough <laughs> in the last uh, few years. So I'll come to this. Uh, I'll come to the third part, which is we spoke about the researcher the lab leader and the entrepreneur. So I think we spoke about the researcher. We'll come to the lab lab, lab leader. Uh, but I want to talk about the entrepreneur, also a co-founder of a startup called QBio, 
right? So I think it's really incredible that you are not willing to simply publish papers and sit inside academia. Maybe what I'm saying might be harsh, out of place. I agree it can be wrong, but I'm telling you what I'm honestly feeling. That there are a lot of academics who publish, but rarely take their ideas and apply it in the world against capital, against risk, against expectations, right? And as a technical founder, what has your journey been and what advice would you have for people who are studying technical fields, whether it is in chemistry, whether it is in chemical engineering, whether it is in, you know, uh, nuclear or petroleum or aeronautical, that it's very important to do lab work, but come out and build products and build companies and build services. I think that's, uh, that's definitely important. One needs to look at uh, solving real world problems, right? And instead of, you know, going around with a hammer and searching for a nail. But, but the challenge, of course, is that, um, uh, I mean, I can't fault anybody because uh, biology is a very difficult beast, right? The, the turnaround, the amount of time it takes to, to productize something is huge. So I've, I've actually, uh, I mean, although we have like a, uh, an ongoing startup, uh, we've, uh, I've previously mentored students on startups and they've had two really bright students who came up with brilliant ideas. And after four or five iterations, they just had to give up because they felt that they were solving research problem after research problem after research problem. I really think they could have published three impactful papers, but they literally couldn't get the product out because the, the biology is often poorly understood. And uh, this is why, you know, it's uh, it's actually a very complex <laughs> beast to, to tackle. So I think that's, uh, that's definitely a put off for a lot of people. Because uh, because the competition is against like somebody who makes a, a quick app, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And uh, so so deep tech versus uh, uh, so bio, there is biology on the one side, there is deep tech, and there is uh, uh, the rest of it. There's the rest of it, right? So how do you really so uh, so, e so even deep tech is already hard, and biology is exponentially harder than that. So. And, and even in our uh, company, it's uh, one of the one of the things has been a real challenge. So we are uh, essentially a research con consultancy company. So we um, we work with pharma and uh, FMCG and so on to solve very specific problems that they have, right? So it could be uh, how to produce a particular molecule, how to improve the efficiency of production of a particular molecule, or it could be a scientific question, or why is this particular thing happening in my system? So in all of these things, it's uh, the you need an appetite for research for sure. And uh, if um, you know, if, if you are profitable and if you are comfortable, there's no reason to step outside your com comfort zone for, for a lot of people. And uh, this has been the, the, the challenge for us. Right? So how do you pull people to come outside their comfort, uh, comfort zone and think about how this, this, you know, uh, this piece of research can actually make a big impact to your company's bottom line and so on. So this is very important. And um, I think there are multiple layers of challenges here. So we need uh, young students to be taught about entrepreneurship, taught up, taught about uh, finally what counts, right? It's, uh, I think we get very good scientific training, but in terms of what actually matters in the industry, right? How you address practical problems, how you handle compliance, how do you handle regulatory uh, uh, approvals, how do you handle ultimately have a profitable economic process in, in, in place. So uh, these become challenges and um, I'm not sure how different fields are exposed to it. So uh, 
I consider myself a little exposed to it because I studied at the Institute of Chemical Technology where there was always this industry interface and so on. So we had a course on chemical process economics and things like that. But, but still, that's still theoretical at the end of the day. You really need practical hands-on uh, uh, you know, work to understand uh, what translates, what will work. Because when I talk to uh, folks in the industry and doctors and things like that, I, I see that perspective, right? So they tell me right, to have a, a productive process or like a, a feasible, viable uh, a process, you need to have yeah. X percent, you know, you need to be 50% more profitable than what currently exists, right? So that's really not how a scientist thinks. A scientist should think that 10% is a great jump, right? But that, that just gets lost when... You go through the whole marketing and the, the whole uh, process and so on. So these are all very interesting perspectives that uh, well, we need to train young students with. <laughs> I, I also want to add one more dimension to it, which is I think when you really think about bringing entrepreneurship in into these sort of deep tech areas, one thing is to really talk about the nuts and bolts of actually running the business, which I agree that yes, there needs to be a lot more exposure to that. But I think... Even more than that, I think, do you think that we do a poor job in actually establishing the opportunities in India for these type of products and, you know, services that people can actually build? Because if you even take rare diseases, for example, right? So you have a registry, you have a repository, you have some structures, you have some amount of data to actually go with. Now, again, I understand there are exponential costs, there is exponential compute power that is actually required. And there's a lot of investment that will actually be required to actually go through the trials to get through any level of the discovery process, right? Uh, but I think somewhere in the quest for building companies, are we forgetting whom we are serving is my question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complex uh, thing, uh, but I do think there are lots of opportunities available today, uh, right? So there's, uh, this uh, um, Bayrak, for example, has lots of uh, grants for various kinds of entrepreneurs of different uh, uh, sizes and shapes. And uh, I think all this is like a big plus today. And uh, I think it's, 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 it's competitive and we do get lots of interesting applications, interesting startups and there have been a few good startups that have come even in the bio biology space. And I have to say even in the biology space because it's an uphill task, right? So yeah. you need to look at, uh, there are just so many challenges to navigate this space. And uh, because you need, I think, orders of magnitude more patients than you would in other fields. So it definitely makes it a lot more challenging, especially for youngsters who, you know, who are in the prime of their life and, you know, they are like looking to get, you know, into a, you know, a settled job and things like that, but they have so much of uncertainty and uh, the, the things like that. So it's, it's, it's a difficult uh, challenge to surmount. And um, I think it's just the individual passion which will finally count because that's the only thing that can overpower all these other uncertainties and so on. And uh, definitely, right, I think... Um, there are different schemes and I think we will see that there are, um, I think the state governments have come up with different schemes and things like that. So all of these are eventually going to have a trickle-down effect. So uh, I'm an optimist and I always see that, uh, you no know, things have been, things are definitely way better today than they were 10 years ago and uh, okay. very likely to accelerate further as well. Understood. And now that brings me to the second part, which is the lab leader, which is your, uh, you run your own lab uh, at IIT Madras and you're also a core member of uh, the Robert Bosch Center for Data Science and AI, right? So what is the experience 
of actually being in a lab and doing literal lab work as a young student, as a young person. And how can it be transformative in their journey to decide whether they want to be an academic, an industry professional or a founder? Yeah. So this is actually a, a, a tough question for me to answer simply because uh, surprisingly, um, a lot of my students have gone on to academic positions so far, right? The, the couple of them have gone into the industry, but uh, a very large majority has go, have gone on to academic positions. Although I do have lots of close interactions in the industry and I do see positions where these students can fit in, but uh, um, looks like they're very passionate about academic positions as well. And uh, academic positions are actually getting harder and harder. It's, uh, you know, it's really not, uh, um, uh, you, you teach, you do research. There's just so many things that you have to do today to, to be a, a, a full academic. And um, uh, that's a quite a, quite a challenge. But I think the most important aspect of, you know, running a lab is to have an environment with diverse people, with people who speak different languages. Uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, our vernaculars are definitely welcome, but even in terms of the science, right? So there is a computer scientist who speaks differently, who thinks differently from a physicist or like a, 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 a biologist, right? And you have all of these people talk together. It's, it's always fun. And... Uh, it's just important to have passionate people and uh, I just really like it and uh, I uh, sit and watch from the sides when it's like a heated argument going on about like a model, right? Like this is the way to do it or that's the way to do it, right? So it's, it's like very nice when um, you have students from different backgrounds and what I've seen is that a lot, all of these students are, most of them have been very enthusiastic in contributing to other people's work. So there is a presentation that a student is doing and there is an, another student who actually understands only half of it because it's really not their cup of tea. But still, you know, they take the effort to fully understand what's going on and to try to give useful suggestions and so on. And it always happens that there'll be like one really useful suggestion that has a very nice impact on the, uh, the, the study that we are doing and uh, the things like that. So... It's, it's very important to have these large uh, these uh, uh, these groups where you have diverse people and larger groups, right? So there are larger groups where, as you were mentioning, the, the Center for Data Science and uh, AI, we are now a school of data science and AI. And we have uh, people from very different uh, labs who will come and sit in. Uh, we have this um, day-long showcase where we have 60 poster presentations. And, and these posters span computational chemistry, computational biology, computational material science. Um, actual deep learning, reinforcement learning, and so on, uh, transport applications and the whole spectrum. And you have all these people talking to each other, right? And in fact, the reason why we originally set up this center was this uh, funny story that we used to joke that uh, almost every lab uh, in, involved with the center has independently implemented certain the same algorithm on their own. <laughs> yeah. right? There's so much of reinvention of the wheel that happens. And this this actually reduces and this becomes a synergy when people start talking to each other in these large meetings and uh, and uh, nice settings like you know a poster presentation is a very uh, comfortable setting to really chat and discuss and so on so it's like a lot of fun so i think these are the key ingredients so get diverse people give them and uh, typically my students have uh, a lot of freedom they, they keep telling me that they are happy with it but i i keep asking them do you think you know you need a more structured uh, approach and uh, so on? But uh, they have like a lot of freedom to try what they want to and try and fail. And uh, I usually don't uh, put too many strong deadlines on them. And uh, 
uh, things like that. Um, so it's so you need an environment which uh, fosters this uh, where they need to be happy and uh, passionate. Got it. So Karthik, my next question is that you know, can you explain the concept of uh, in silico metabolic engineering and its significance in your lab's research? Sure. <clears throat> so, so this is this is in fact one of the key reasons why we set up QBiome as well, because you wanted to take these um, and um, like let's say there's a there's a vitamin that's being produced. So today it's probably being produced chemically. How do you produce it biologically? Right? Because the the kind of solar treatment processes that you have to follow, the kind of pollutants that emerge out of your system, all of these things are being taken into account, and there's a push from the government, from uh, uh, international agencies to, to go more towards biological processes and so on. So how do you figure out how to make like a vitamin using a biological system, right? So you first have to try and figure out what is the pathway, what is the route to producing the system. And then you have a cell which seems to produce most of it, has most of these pieces, but not all of these. So you may have to take a couple of pieces from some other cell and put it into this and then figure out what is going to be the productivity of this system. Is it viable enough for you to run a process with it? Will it be commercially viable, feasible? So these are the questions. And <clears throat> I have a system that's producing li like a vitamin. And now how do I make it produce more of it? How do I, which road should I widen in the cell? Which road should I shut down in the cell to make this happen? You have a cell that's producing a particular molecule and you've, it has you know various parts of it and you you try to basically you have a pathway that produces something now how do you produce more of it because that's what's required to make it commercially viable so metabolic engineering is about is about predictively figuring out what roads to shut down and what roads to widen in the cell so that you have more of the output that you want as you know one of my colleagues used to remark uh, the life of a cell is how to take substrate and make it into biomass like cellular mass the life of a metabolic engineer is take substrate and make it into your vitamin product. Whatever is the commercially important product, right? It could be a nutraceutical, it could be a vitamin, it could be whatever. So how do you redirect the cell, uh, cell's visionary such that you don't compromise growth so much because you want the cells to grow and multiply and so on and also produce enough of whatever it is that you want it to produce, right? So, so this becomes a challenge and so you have to simulate. So I have a thousand genes in the cell. Which of those genes do I knock out? And this is where a systems perspective becomes really useful because now I see the whole system. I know that if I touch this particular gene here, something is going to happen here. So all of these interactions I try to identify and that's the whole crux of in silico metabolic engineering. I make predictions that we then test out in the lab with our collaborators, with people who actually work on real cells and so on. Make these modifications, manipulations and figure out how it has had an impact on the production of that particular molecule. For example, we worked on, uh, with my colleague, uh, Professor uh, Smita Srivastava, we worked on uh, producing tocopherol or vitamin E using sunflower cell lines. And uh, we had almost a tenfold overproduction of tocopherol following our engineering steps, right? And these were predicted using metabolic models. And these models are actually uh, relatively simple. They are basically, like your, um, uh, for a, uh, you know, for those who've studied science, you, physics, you have studied the Kirchhoff's law. Right? So it's how charge gets distributed in a circuit. So this is similarly how mass gets distributed in a network. You can think of it as a system of pipes through which water is flowing. Right? I want to maximize the flow through one pipe. So which pipes do I close and open so that more water flows through my uh, outlet? 
And uh, this is the optimization problem that we need to solve. And there's lots of computational jugglery we do to get around these problems. And uh, definitely this is impactful, especially when you try to test it out in a lab and you have uh, very promising results at the end of the day, because that is the proof of the pudding. So till that, you know, any amount of predictions you make, uh, you're not very happy or confident. But once you see them working in the lab, you really think that this is uh, as a potential for huge impact. And what future developments do you anticipate or hope for in the fields of uh, computational biology and biological network analysis? I mean, the, the field itself is so vast, so I think there are going to be uh, inputs from uh, various aspects. But um, I think the ability to study uh, biological systems at scale, at resolution, has become a very important, uh, a very powerful step in our journey. So today you can see single cells and how they interact with each other. And this heterogeneity has been a bane in biology, but it's 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 the time to sort of convert it into a boon because once you unravel it, once you understand it, you might be able to unlock uh, a, a lot more interesting things about biological systems that we haven't been able to tackle so far. So I think this is definitely going to be one huge area, and clearly this is uh, going to keep computational folks super busy. Because the, when the scale just explodes, instead of looking at uh, uh, one cell, you're going to look at 1,000 or 10,000 cells, right? So your scale is just going to expand in, in, in that fashion. And um, it's going to keep the computational folks really, really busy. And, uh, you know, my follow-up to that is, you know, how do you envision your lab's work on impacting future scientific research, healthcare, biotech, etc. Yeah, so, so there are so, so many domains. I think currently we are a little uh, slightly obsessed with the microbiome because we see a lot of potential for the microbiome. So we are working on uh, trying to understand how it in, uh, impacts uh, uh, infants. Okay? So infant uh, diarrhea is a huge problem in India. And uh, can you actually understand what kind of microbiomes or microbes contribute to these uh, factors? So these are things that we are studying and also many other environments. For instance, we are also hoping to study environmental microbiomes and things like that. For instance, uh, uh, corals, you see that a lot of corals are getting bleached and so on. And there is an increasing role that's been identified for the microbiome microbes that are present amongst these corals to in how they are impacting. So um, the, the algorithms, the methodologies that we are developing, I think will be really useful to try and understand what kind of interactions are happening and how do you make these interventions? How do you manipulate these microbiomes? And that's definitely going to be a huge thing. There's a, uh, the, there's a lot of challenges here because you don't have the, the best models. You still don't have fully characterized microbiomes. And <coughs> there, is a, there is a bias towards bacteria, whereas you know, fungi are also present in huge quantities. and and there's like a lot of dark matter there, which we don't know what it is, and a lot of unculturable microbes. So there are, uh, in any direction I turn, there are so many interesting questions that uh, that are there. And uh, I think the challenge for us is to actually prioritize the most interesting and, uh, and uh, not just the most interesting ones, but the ones which we are most likely equipped to answer and try to make a contribution in that. Right. So, Karthik, thank you so much for this. I'm going to proceed into our rapid-fire segment. So, I want to know your quick thoughts on this. And if you want to give a more detailed, broad answer, please feel free. Uh, 
Sure. So my first question to you is, what is one piece of advice you'd give your younger self? <laughs> okay, so um, I think I, this is something I probably did, but uh, probably could do it even more. Is that uh, you know try to do as many as many courses as possible. Right? Expose yourself to as many areas as you can. And uh, to my credit, I did uh, audit courses from aerospace engineering, cell biology, and <laughs> so on when I was at IASC. And um, and I think uh, I I couldn't do this as an undergrad. As an undergrad, we had like a completely set curriculum, which is probably yeah. not believable for most people. But uh, I didn't have a single elective in my uh, undergrad, and my whole reason for uh, you know the the master's course that I joined was that oh wow, there are so many electives that I can. Uh, and uh, already at that point of time, I I was like uh, trying to see how I can couple my uh, my fundamental knowledge in uh, computational science, which was the master's I was doing, with domain. So we were looking at uh, uh, computational courses such as computational approach to drug discovery, which was taught by my PhD advisor, and uh, that that really became uh, instrumental in figuring out what area I would go into in the future and uh, so on. But so so the advice is that today there's just so much information that's out there. There are so many interesting online courses. There's just so much out there. So you can't claim that I haven't studied something, right? Go pick up a book and read it, <laughs> right? So I always uh, this is something that I uh, heard. Something you can no longer give the excuse of I'm not an expert in this. Yeah, nobody expects you to be an expert in this, but uh, but have working knowledge of that field that you're uh, you're uh, you're getting into because it's all interdisciplinary and uh, it's a big challenge and uh, it's it's something that I'm still tackling. The first advice that I got here when I joined IIT as a faculty was. Uh, uh, my uh, director told me that Karthik, be really careful. You'll fall between two stools, and I'm still trying to juggle that. Be very careful because uh, I'm sure some people think that uh, he, he doesn't know any biology, and other people think that he doesn't know any computer science. But <laughs> this is the the tightrope that interdisciplinary folks have to walk today. And uh, so the other piece of advice is be brave. <laughs> Don't it, it's it's not a big deal, right? So. And so expose yourself to a lot of um, uh, various kinds of science, various kinds of talks. I think that's huge. At IAC, the kind of talks from different people we used to have was amazing. And uh, even here, like there are seminars every day, every week. Uh, today, I really don't find enough time to attend all the seminars that I wanted to. And uh, that's a challenge. But other than that, I think uh, nothing educates you more than that, really. <laughs> Uh, what are some books that have changed the way you think and engage with the world? Oh, uh, so uh, so lots of interesting books. So uh, I uh, hand out a lot of um, um, books to my um, uh, st students as well, <laughs> right? So I have these uh, attendance prizes where when students uh, have 100% have on-time attendance in my course, so this is my way of reinforcing them. They get a book at the end of the semester, and uh, so yesterday was the final exam, and I just gave out like seven different books to these people. And um, usually, typically, popular science books and biographies and uh, the things like that. But uh, a lot. So, of so, so which 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 were those seven? <clears throat> so, so I really can't put my finger on one particular book, but um, I really love, uh, like this book called "Where Ideas uh, Where Good Ideas Come From." by uh, Stephen Johnson. I think that was like uh, really impactful in terms of uh, really seeing, uh, giving a process to innovation, right? So innovation is, uh, you think it's like a creative spark, but how do you how do you engineer the conditions to facilitate those creative sparks? 
i think uh, you know that, that's a that's a very uh, cool thing and um, i also really like this book uh, which i think i mentioned in our previous chat it's uh, it doesn't sound great it says it sounds something like this will make you smarter but uh, it's a collection of so many eclectic uh, essays that uh, that gives you a different perspective on so many interesting topics and uh, because there is always i always think that there is an interesting idea in field x that i haven't looked at which is going to solve all my problems and, and that that keeps happening so so in fact we uh, we looked at uh, uh, like a, a very interesting kind of robustness aspect in biology and saw how it could actually impact uh, how we will engineer airline networks and things like that so there's always this translation you can do across fields and um, i also teach my students a lot about these biomimetic algorithms and uh, dna computing and things like that these are things that are still somewhere uh, at least dna computing is borderline science fiction because we you have the classic studies are like 20 years old 30 years old but <laughs> you really don't have enough uh, real life examples of that but uh, today students are just so excited to tinker with biology and uh, a big piece of uh, uh thing i learned from my students is that they said today we need to go and advise people like we were telling people 20 years ago study math today we have to go and tell them study biology <laughs> right so that is how important yeah. biology has become and math has become and students need to sort of uh, 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 straddle these and of course like uh, lots of biographies have been like uh, very very impactful like uh, a man who knew infinity definitely right to understand one of our own like uh, ramarajan who was a complete uh, oddball the way he used to think the way he used to solve problems the way he used to uh, extremely socially challenged uh, the way he used to interact with people and yet an extremely extremely successful mathematician who had huge uh, flaws and failings so it's like a a wonderful lesson in life as well <laughs> something i always encourage students to study um uh, fermat's last theorem <laughs> again a really uh, exciting book and uh, even yesterday i gifted it out to one of the students uh, it really looks at how single minded pursuit of a single question very difficult for scientists to do that but uh, well andrew wiles did achieve that so these are some interesting books i can think of the top of my head my students of course uh, blame that i'm a little biased towards uh, my list of books that i offer them they can they're free to pick outside the list but the list uh, apparently contains too many math books <laughs> uh, uh, rather than anything else but uh, yeah perfect perfect what 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 annoys me about other people that i sometimes do myself <laughs> um difficult to put a finger on but um and so i would say that uh, you know uh, i would slightly paraphrase this question of you know what advice would you give people that you can't follow yourself which is uh, don't multitask <laughs> right so you need oh, to right. monotask to actually accomplish meaningful stuff and when you do it, it it's it's awesome and th- th- that again I'll, i'll bounce off on the previous question for that this is a wonderful book called make time i read right i read deep work also which i think a lot of people uh, love and uh, talk about but uh, i particularly like make time as uh, a really practical book on how you you reclaim your day and uh, turn aside distractions and things like that so while i have turned aside a lot of distractions and so on it's, it's still very difficult to not multitask and uh, you know there are 
so many tasks on your table that you try to keep uh, pushing and for a scientist it's very important to sit on a single task and i wish i would do more of that perfect uh, my next question is what's your go to method for overcoming procrastination uh say that again what's your go to method for overcoming procrastination or writer's block yeah yeah so so again right so so focus on a task right so so any time you turn off all the other tasks that you had to work up uh, work on and uh, this i have seen that this is typically because of how um, uh, how, how busy the day generally gets right so there's so many emails to answer there are so many small tasks that need to be done so you can't really put in like a solid 2 3 hours on uh, i know people talk about this pomodoro and 25 minutes but i really think that we do have the stamina to go 2 3 hours on certain things right so when i set an exam paper or when i um, uh, try to write on a paper write a paper try to set aside 2 uh, 3 hours and um, i i think it works because uh, i'm 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 really tardy on whatsapp uh, <laughs> in fact i have whatsapp notifications turned off which uh, probably annoys a lot of people but it helps me really get through work and um, i also see that when there are certain tasks that don't really get done i need to break them down into smaller doable chunks i don't th- think there is something i've succeeded at doing fully but i can uh, see the merit in doing that and have uh, occasionally succeeded in that as well if you could time travel 25 years into the future what are the top 3 questions you want answers to regarding the state of technology and society <laughs> so yeah so this is a um, <coughs> yeah so the first question is that uh, what are all the things that people have stopped doing because of chat gpt <laughs> okay have people nice. stopped coding uh, have people stopped coding uh, have people stopped um, uh, writing emails <laughs> have people I, i think this is like the one question i really want the answer to because um, chat gpt today is doing things that i couldn't dream of one year ago right i just ask it a very generic question with some i paste a piece of code and it tells me how to refactor it <laughs> right i think i'm a good coder and uh, chat gpt tells me that hey you should be doing these these things with your code it totally understands my code <laughs> uh, right and uh, this is just amazing and um, i i really like this um, one thing i um, maybe i'm going to take a second to pull up the exact code so uh, i think this has influenced me a lot one of my friends told me this uh, a few months ago and it says that uh, john adams was the uh, america's first vice president and second president and when asked if he studied arts during yeah. his visit to france he replied with the following quote he said i must study politics and war so that my sons may have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy my sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy geography natural history naval architecture navigation commerce and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting poetry music architecture uh, statuary tapestry and porcelain <laughs> okay yeah, so yeah, i think yeah, 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 yeah. and i i would also conveniently include basic science in that <laughs> right blue sky research and uh, like say yeah. uh, of course right? so to translate this for a scientist it's like um, we need to solve uh, work on really difficult problems that are plaguing uh, india and the world currently so that our children can do whatever research they want to do right they work blue sky research they actually try to understand 
what happens when i uh, you know how can i uh, uh, you know make this um, uh, protein fold differently right without worrying about whether i'm going to be able to make a drug out of it or anything like that i just want to understand uh, i just want to understand the world yeah. the way it is <laughs> right so i think these are yeah. like um, and i think this is a progression right so if you see uh, uh, generation after generation the, the focus uh, shifts you you do see the younger generations driven by so many different things right and you, you can definitely say at least in india you can see that um, a few generations ago i mean people were obviously chasing roti kapra makan and uh, once Correct. you have that what is the next thing you go to right do you still chase after uh, like you know money or do you still you chase after uh, impact do you chase after uh, you know enjoying <laughs> the work that you do right so these are all questions that i have to i end up discussing with students because they placement season is on us now so next month everybody is going to be worried about what kind of job they are going to go into what kind of uh, life that awaits for them and uh, yeah it's 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 so important to have uh, fun so so going back answering the long answer to your question is i would just ask one question that have people been able to do what they really want <laughs> instead of doing things that other people want and drudgery and uh, you know coding and all, all kinds of other things Uh, has ai been able to help people realize their potential right <laughs> because there's this one side of the thing that uh, you know talks about like an ai doomsday and things like that i i don't belong to that group i'm an optimist of course but the thing is has uh, ai helped people to really focus on more exciting things for themselves what whatever that could be right perfect perfect uh, if you had to condense your life philosophy into one sentence what would it be yeah i think it's um <clears throat> and this is something that uh, one of my uh, teachers told me in uh, college as well right so you have an input you have a process and you have an output um the output um uh, input is whatever you are whoever you are as uh, you know you, you can make a few changes to that um process is the longest part of this box right process happens for a long time the output is they you know you get a paper you get an award you win a world cup you lose a world cup and so on right so that's like something that's very very fleeting right but if you fix the process if you enjoy the process then you know you can really uh, i i think that's important because uh, it, it's like you know if you enjoy your work every day is a holiday right so you need to make sure that you enjoy the process and uh, that's just only so much you can do about the outcomes right and as all of us are smarting from the world cup defeat but we know that we had a process which helped us win so many games in the last uh, three world cups compared to any other team right so okay. it's uh, of course right you know there is a very materialistic side which says that uh, uh, the cup is what counts but um, i think as a uh, as a as a teacher i must advise the students that hey you need to get your process right and you need to enjoy the process so that you can be happier <laughs> right and what's a recent discovery or a piece of information that has blown your mind hmm i mean uh, to say something that's like truly mind blowing i think it's uh, definitely alpha food <laughs> because this, this was always seen like a problem that could never be tackled and uh, similarly i think uh, very close on those heels is something like chat gpt where uh, you know you have uh, of course there are like many challenges there but uh, you still see that you know it can do certain things um, so shockingly well that uh, we didn't think was possible like say 5 years ago so i think all of those are like um, 
uh, huge and um, <coughs> in terms of my own science <coughs> i think what really um, excites me is that um, the ability to study uh, biological cells at the kind of resolution the kind of sequencing technologies that we are getting and the fact that they are becoming dirt cheap is going to impact us in ways that we haven't yet thought about and uh, <coughs> so <laughs> really exciting times for youngsters to enter uh, this exciting interface between computing and biology and make huge impacts there absolutely what's the most valuable piece of advice you ever received and who gave it to you i think i uh, uh, i i can't put my finger on one thing but <clears> the <throat> one thing that really comes close is that uh, what i just uh, mentioned earlier in terms of enjoy the process right because there's um, the because uh, a lot of times uh, we used to you know uh, make fun of certain students right so you're always when you're at iit you're trying to find out what's your next job and when you're at your next job you're trying to find what's the next thing right so when are you going to enjoy the time that you are in so it's it's very important to enjoy the time that you are the your, your present life and uh, <clears throat> i mean uh, it, it's always nice to look back and say oh i had so much fun as a kid i had so much fun as a college goer or whatever and so on but i think we need to uh, have a lot of value for the time that you live in right and whatever is it that you are doing today i think uh, taking a lot of happiness out of it and seeing the fun in it i think uh, that's probably the most uh, uh, valuable thing perfect and my final question to you is what's one daily habit or routine that has had a profound impact on your life so i'm i'm an early riser i think that's like uh, really important because uh, it it really gets you um, uh, you Boy. know it it gives you a huge head start for the day it's like a big cliche and but uh, yeah. it's it's definitely like um, uh, really impactful so you know you can really start working early when you have no emails to trouble you you have so you 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 enable uh, you dictate your day more when you're an early riser i think uh, uh, i think that's uh, definitely like one thing that uh, uh, makes a lot of uh, difference and uh, also you know keeping a lot of time to yourself for doing your own uh, uh, you know daily uh, you know meditations or prayers and things like that i think that keeps you grounded and uh, rooted right it's i think that's a huge uh, aspect of our own culture and uh, so on wherein you know we always uh, have uh, there is a, a higher force to to lean on when things go wrong right so to to keep to keep that close to you i think uh, makes a huge difference kartik i want to say thank you so much for taking the time and being on the inductive economy i am absolutely thrilled that you took so so much of time interest and passion to answer these questions and i hope you had a spectacular time on the podcast yeah it it, it was a lot of fun something i haven't done uh, enough and uh, i think it was interesting uh, a, a few uh, googlies that i had to handle but uh, i think it was a lot of fun overall uh, having this chat uh, uh, looking forward uh, you know very nice work on contramines uh, wishing you guys all the best Awesome.